Thank you, thank you, thank you. Are you gonna stay up here or do you wanna go? Are you waiting? <laughs> I'm okay if you stay. I do. <laughs> you are welcome to do that. <laughs> I was like, did I mess up, Connie? Did I miss something? <laughs> was there something else? <laughs> good morning. What a good morning it is. What a fun thing it is to start this work. Um, one of the things that I treasure most about who we are here as Unity Spiritual Center in the Rockies is our willingness to take seriously to heart more than just talking about being an inclusive spiritual community, but stretching ourselves, stretching to figure out how we live as inclusive people and taking that word inclusive off the surface and really going down into it and saying, what does that mean in our world as it is today? What does, I am, I am on, but thank you. <laughs> Maybe I was talking too quiet. So I'll talk a little louder, how's that? So I really appreciate about us that we are an inclusive spiritual community where we recognize and express our oneness with ourselves, each other, and all creation. Really value that. And that means that when we share our building with High Plains Church Unitarian Universalist, we are accepting the oneness of who we are together. We are not just knowing that we have someone sharing the building, but we're actually asking ourselves, what are they bringing for us? And what are we bringing to them? And why in the divine plan is there this interesting collaborative moment? So we have to get to know each other a little better. What we have to find out first is, where do you come from? And why do you exist in the first place? And what is it that you're doing in the world that's interesting and that we should pay attention to? So I am thrilled to have my friend Julia McKay come and join me up here on the platform. And she is going to share a little bit with us about the kind of the founding moments, the foundation of Unitarian Universalism. And she also is just a rockin' lady, so would you please welcome her? <laughs> I, I have to tell you, I'm a little jealous because when we write the short little acronym for High Plains, we write H, small i, capital P. So she gets to be the hip minister. So I am going to turn you over to the hip minister. It doesn't feel like I'm on either. There it goes. Now I hear it. Okay, good. So I don't think it's an accident that we are uh, having this conversation. Uh, Ariana has had a long time commitment to interreligious work and Unitarian Universalism has considered themselves a pluralistic faith for many, many, many decades now, certainly since the early to mid 19th or 20th century, um, starting really in the mid 19th century, people uh, integrating Eastern philosophy and all kinds of things. So in any of our communities, 
you'll you'll find people from lots of different faith backgrounds. You'll find Jewish folks, you'll find Christian folks, you'll find Buddhist folks uh, across uh, lots of different spectrums, pagan and earth-based traditions. You'll also find agnostic and atheist folks in our congregations. And people are like, what, atheist people go to church? And this is because we, we believe that you don't necessarily have to believe in a God per se to have a spiritual life, to have a spiritual journey. So we, we pretty much sort of have blown the doors off of what religion might be and might look like for folks. And so um, I want to tell you just a little bit about where that started and where it has come from and where we are now. And then we'll go back and forth. And we're going to do this three times today. This is our second time through. And it, it'll be different every time, I'm sure. <laughs> so... so um, I want to say that Unitarians are the children of the Protestant, are some children of the Protestant Reformation. And so I'm going to go back 500 years when the Catholic Church had had a thousand years of power after the fall of the Roman Empire. And um, the problem that the Reformation was trying to solve was what? Religious tyranny or religious control. And specifically, uh, and that's when Martin Luther rose up as a priest in the Catholic Church, and he wasn't really trying to start a new religion. He was actually trying to say, wow, these are things about my faith that I can't abide by. And specifically, the one where people were beholden to purchase their eternal salvation by paying money to the church, right? Um, by monetary payouts called indulgences. And so... He um, had a huge impact, though, because of one specific really cultural thing that happened, which was that the printing press was invented. And so his ideas spread far and wide in the public square much more than they may have. We don't know. But um, the printing press made this information available to the general public. It also made the Bible available to the general public for the first time. This was the first time that the Bible was not being interpreted by priests alone and as priests as intermediaries uh, to God. And so now that's not such a big deal, but back then that, that was a big deal. Um, I, I think indigenous cultures have never really lost that capacity and that thread to have their own personal connection and personal experience with the divine, but um, many white European Christians did. They, 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 they trusted the priest to be that voice of God to them. And so this was a, a little bit earth shattering to Europe when people began reading the Bible for the first time. And all of a sudden they said, huh, there are some things in the Bible that we've been told were in the Bible that actually aren't in here. And one of those things was the Trinity. And so early Unitarians, and that's where we get our name Unitarian, because we claimed the unity of God, not the Trinity of God. And so early Unitarians basically went through the Bible and they said, these are all the scripture verses that are being used to substantiate the Trinity, but they really don't. And so uh, early on, the word Unitarian was 
pejorative. Oh, you're a Unitarian. You're one of those heretics, right? We were seen as heretical in those days. Um, so uh, the Unitarians began to claim that God, that God was in unity, that the animating force of life, whatever that is, however we name that from tradition to tradition, we all name it differently, but whatever that is, it's one. And it's the same to all people, and all people have direct access to that. And so that was, that was kind of a big deal. And that sounds a little like unity, doesn't it? Sounds a little like the first couple principles of unity. And, and it's not surprising that people often ask me, are you unity? No, we're Unitarian. And I know unity, people get asked if they're Unitarians. So uh, that language comes from the same place. So the solution to that problem, which was religious tyranny, was public education, right? Public access to information. And the mechanism that created that public access. And then, and then because of that public access, the public exerting some moral pressure on religious and political power. So that's something to hang on to because that's the piece, I think, in terms of our tradition that is really applicable today, right? We are in a time of massive corruption. And so what about our faith calls us into the public square to hold people to moral and ethical standards? So um, I think the other piece that's so important about Luther is he talked about the priesthood of all believers and that we can own our rightful relationship to God unmediated by a church, a priest, or even a, a, any kind of ritual. And, and it's about active, our active participation in our faith. And so for Unitarians, that whole process of the Reformation, and we are part of what's called the Radical Reformation, we took it even a little bit further and said, gosh, if we're born good from a good God, we don't even have the need for baptism. So there was an Anabaptist movement saying, um, we get to celebrate our lives. Um, and so for us, that means three things, religious freedom and freedom of conscience. And so that's not only freedom, but a certain responsibility comes with that freedom, right? To determine moral truth that doesn't harm another person. So that's our fourth principle. We have seven principles, and I'm not going to go through them all, but that's where our fourth principle comes. Uh, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And the second was that authority determined one's spiritual and religious life. So our congregations became what was called congregational. Instead of being controlled by a hierarchy, congregations then began to decide what, how they wanted to operate. And so this is largely where some of the democratic process came from. Uh, the Congregationalists were very significant in terms of the formation of our country and had a lot of political influence there in, on democracy. So we are a democratically run congregation. Um, and the relationship with the minister is that I'm a teacher. I, our ministers are hired as teachers and 
uh, bringing best practices and hired as leaders, but we're not an authority, right? Because no one has infinite wisdom and um, I, it's not my job to direct you through my infinite wisdom, right? That uh, we're really churches by the people for the people. And so um, the third thing is the gift of diversity. We became pluralistic. And um, one of our founders, Francis David, said, you do not have to think alike to love alike. And so each of our religions has a piece of the truth about God. Uh, nobody has the whole truth. And so that's this experiment that we're in. And so let me just say a couple more things, and then I'll turn it over to Ariana. Um, our tradition came from two different threads, the Unitarian thread and the Universalist thread that merged in 1961, the year I was born. And um, so the Universalist thread is the other thread, which began in the 1800s in this country and has really tied our origins of unity and Universalist uh, traditions uh, weave a lot of common threads. And the problem then in society was that Calvin had created the idea that God had damned half of his creation to hell and the other half was going to heaven and there was really nothing you could do about it. Yeah, yeah groan, right? <laughs> and so the universalist said, hmm, let's use our mind, let's use our mind and let's use our hearts and if we imagine this God as a good God, as, as uh, ultimately good, right? And whatever that God is creating is ultimately good. We're told we're created in the image. Why would that God damn half of its creation to hell? It just doesn't even make logical sense, right? And so the universalists began to claim universal salvation, that all people were born good, and so all people are good. All beings, all creation is good. And so um, that's where we get the name universalist. And so that's, I'll say one more thing, and then I'll turn it over. That's the impulse that we have in our tradition. I think you probably know we're strongly uh, social justice advocates in the, in the larger world. And that impulse comes from that belief in the inherent worth and dignity of each person, which is our first principle. And so if we actually believe in that inherent worth and that we all have the same inherent worth and we all have the same access to the good in life, then we need to create systems in order for that to happen. And we happen to live in a system that all people do not have the same access to good, right? And so this is when we begin to fight for justice. and. You've heard uh, the famous quote, injustice anywhere is a setup for, or a threat for justice everywhere, right? Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That's kind of universalism in a nutshell. So um, I'll be back a little bit later when we talk together about now what? Now what are our traditions calling us to do in this now moment? considering those problems that they were trying to solve two, three, four, or 500 years ago. What problems are we trying to solve today? Thank, Thank you, you for listening. Yeah. Yay.
So this has been really fun for me. It's been really fun because like we know the basic story of Charleston Myrtle Fillmore. What they did, that Myrtle experienced a, a very miraculous healing. And that Charles said, if it's if it's if it happens for you, it has to be duplicatable. Otherwise, it's a fluke, right? If you can use prayer and and bring yourself out of tuberculosis, then I should be able to do healing on my body as well, and so should everybody else. And this the story we most often talk about is that story, is how healing, how these healing principles were passed on, and how we became unity. But what I did was I went back and I looked at the 1800s and said, well, what was the world, what was happening in the world in the 1800s? Because I was born like Julia in 1961, and I do this. I am not a historian. (laughs) And so I went back and I looked, and it was really, I learned some really interesting things. So Charles was born in in 1854, and Myrtle was born in 1845 they were nine years apart they were born in the early part of the 1800s some really significant things had happened where they ended up they ended up the two of them met in texas they came here to gunnison they went to pueblo and had a couple of kids got involved in the real estate world and you know just the reader's digest version went to kansas city went to missouri why Well, because at that time, Kansas City was a hub because Kansas City was on the Oregon Trail and it was on the Santa Fe Trail. And so there were five states at that time that had reached a million in population. Our country had about 50 million and there were only five states that had reached a million in population. And surprisingly, one of those was Missouri. And the reason it was Missouri was because these trails came through. People could travel there by river, and it was really a gateway to get to the western side of the United States. So a lot of interesting people came through Oregon, and a lot of interesting people settled in Oregon. And one of the groups that settled before Charles and Myrtle had had moved there was Joseph Smith and the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Any of you heard of that church? We most commonly refer to those folks as Mormons. Has anybody heard of the Mormon War? Yeah, so in 1930, in 1838, the Mormon War happened in Missouri. And essentially, the governor of the state issued something called the Missouri Executive Order 44 must have been the 44th executive order, demanding the Mormons leave Missouri or be killed. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? 22 people were killed. 10,000 people were pushed out of the state. That's a pretty significant number of people. Do you think that the population might have remembered that, you know, religions that didn't match the standard norm were not very welcome? just an interesting thing to consider because the Fillmore started something entirely new within memory of that happening. Let's look at some other things that were happening. In in 1881 was the battle at the OK Corral. The West was still pretty wild. 
And we were still having shootouts and telling people we were going to kill them if they didn't move out of our neighborhood. It was a very different time. People were still traveling, some by train and some by wagon train, still trying to come out to this side. Some really interesting things happened during that time, like in, I'm looking for the year, June 17th, 1885, 10 years after the Statue of Liberty was actually built, it was moved into New York Harbor. That's right at the time that unity was coming to be. In fact, Myrtle and Charles moved to Kansas City in 1886. And in 1886, several things happened. One of the big things that happened for them is that Myrtle was diagnosed with, with tuberculosis. So I want to tell you a little bit about tuberculosis at that time. In the 18th century, in, in the 19th century, in the 1800s, this is why I didn't do history because I can't remember what's what. In the 1800s, 25% of Europe died of the white plague. And the white plague was tuberculosis. And tuberculosis was a very interesting disease because remember that they had come out of the Renaissance years of the Black Plague. And when you got the Black Plague, you died right now. It was quick. They called tuberculosis the White Plague because it took time. It was a slow disease that became known as consumption. It took time and people became more and more frail. But it was the White Plague because at that time, it was seen as precious that you had time to say your goodbyes, time to make peace with your life, time to take care of all of your affairs. It was seen as a much more gracious way to go than, than Europe had been experiencing. In the 1800s in the United States, one out of seven people died of tuberculosis. It was a very big deal here for Myrtle to have been given this diagnosis was a very big deal. She had every reason to believe she wasn't going to live, and the doctors told her she wouldn't live to raise her two children. How would you feel? Would you give up or would you not? One of the powerful things about Myrtle is that she didn't give up, and that's where we get the healing story from. What I found that was really interesting is I found an article from the Kansas City Gazette in the 1800s, in the early 18, or, uh, mid 1800s, that talks about what was happening in the market and in the real estate market. Remember that Charles went there because it was a booming metropolis and he was going to make a lot of money in real estate. That's why he went. And they had a crash very similar to the crash that we had in 2008. And according to a 1933 article in the Kansas City Gazette, he, about him, he lost $150,000 in that market crash. That's a big deal because that was in the 1800s. To, in the, at the end of the 1800s, to lose $150,000 today would be a huge deal to me. But back then, imagine how much money that was, how much money he had amassed, how successful he was. So now he's lost his fortune, and his wife is dying, and he has to figure out how to make it through. And they find their way to a lecture by E.B. Weeks, who says, you are a child of God, you did not inherit illness. And for whatever miraculous reason, 
Myrtle grabs that statement and says, okay, I'm not dying. I'm going to use this. I am a child of God. I did not inherit illness. I'm going to cure myself. And she begins to pray and begins the process that ultimately ends up as being unity. So the problem, the first and big problem, was devastation, the possible devastation of their lives, the need to heal. Unity is always has always been seen as a um, as having a strong base in prosperity teaching. How would you get through if you had amassed a fortune and you lost it? You would have to look at yourself as a person of prosperity in a different way, wouldn't you? You would have to come to a place of having a much deeper understanding that prosperity is about being a thriving human being, a thriving spiritual being a thriving person of power, empowered by something very different than money. And yet, involving that as well. So it's not by accident that we come to these teachings as very foundational. They used prayer, they used prosperity consciousness, they used the understanding that they had access to divine mind, and they pulled themselves up out of difficulty. That's very much where we are today. We are living in a world where, in our state, we our cost of living is comparable to California's. What it costs to live here makes it tough to be here. We have to pull ourselves up. We are living in a time where we are, we are struggling with mental illness. We are struggling with discord and fracturing in our society. And these tools that we have are very necessary in today's world. Myrtle was an educated woman. She had the privilege of going to Oberlin University. She was a school teacher. She had been taught. Charles, on the other hand, was birthed on a Native American res on, on a reservation. His father was was a trapper and a trader, and he was his. He found his education in very unusual ways, and that gave him privilege because he didn't grow up in a standard educational environment. He had the freedom to explore various faith traditions and paths in life. He had the opportunity to learn a lot. And one of the, the teachers that he and Myrtle were both great devotees to was Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And Ralph Waldo Emerson was at one time a Unitarian minister. So there's, there's one point where we begin to cross paths. Emerson was also a founding father of trans transcendentalism, which then brings us to our deep-seated work in meditation, how Fillmore came to be the deep and profound meditator that he was and, and how much we've learned from that, how much that affects what we do today. It is the, the thing you can find in common in every Unity Church. You will always find a time for silent meditation in every Unity Church you go to. So, so we came out of the need for healing, didn't we? Out of the need to bring ourselves out of the conditions of society to a deeper knowing. And that's very interesting to me. It's very, very interesting to me to think about that. And if we did more historic study, could we pull up more? Yeah, of course we could. There's more there. But just on the surface looking at it, those are the first thoughts. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about maybe <laughs> on Mike on. There now you I go. am. 
What would you like to know? Well, I, <laughs> I told them about Emerson. I'd like to yeah. know more about where you see um, where, where you see Unitarian Universalism today in comparison to uh, what you identify as what you identify as its founding problem and where you see your faith working on that problem today. I, well, I, I think I alluded to that before. Um, we were a tradition that came out of working on religious corruption and political corruption and um, hopefully to stand in society in the public square bringing a set of values and morals forward to um, inform what's happening in culture. I think the thing that we've had several conversations already and every conversation is different. I think the thing that's interesting to me right now is that the way they solved the problem here was um, access to information, right? Access to education. People began to read. People began to um, see themselves as having the capacity to make their own choices and decisions um, about what they thought and what they felt in their own hearts and see themselves as their own uh, their own mitigator of their own faith, their own priest. And I think the hard thing today that I worry about is that education is not uh, or is, is being challenged as a value and truth is being challenged as a value. And so if those ways that we solved those problems in the past by um, bringing ourselves into a knowledge base so that we could have greater understanding is not valued now. Where does that leave us? And I feel really challenged by that. Yeah, that we were talking in between services about the fact that um, in the U Unitarian Universalist faith, basically you removed the priest so there wasn't an expert so that mm -hmm. people could become their own experts. And now in today's world, as we look at the world, one of the problems we have is we don't trust any experts. We don't trust people who've spent years educating themselves on a subject. And so we are, we are responding to each other's opinions rather than each other's educational uh, and, mm -hmm. and proven facts, because nothing is true. It, everything that, that we are claiming is true is discounted as not true. And so it's, and it's across society. And so that's, a, that's an interesting place to be. And I think that, uh, I think it's important to mention, Julia mentioned that the, the printing press was so instrumental in, instrumental in the uh, kind of emerging of Unitarian, uh, is Unitarian or? It's the whole Unitarian. Reformation. Right. The entire Reformation. But being yeah. able to disseminate information, I think another interesting point that, it, that you should know is that Unity did not begin as a church. It began as a publishing. It began as a magazine. And uh, part of that, part of the, the byline, I think I wrote it down. Let me see if I've got it on my notes. One of the bylines of the magazine, and it was called Modern Thought Magazine, was devoted to the spiritualization of humanity from an independent standpoint. Hmm. That was the byline. So there's a common thread there mm -hmm. in wanting to uh, create this place for us to think for ourselves. And a common question 
now that we do that, in how far we've taken the thinking for ourselves and where we as a society uh, honor expert knowledge, who we listen to and how we listen and whether or not we're willing to listen. Well, and I think uh, one of the other things I talked about in the last service was that that founding uh, idea of the unity of God and the universalism across the board um, was really part of our founding of our country. And I want to read what I wrote here just so I say it the way I want to say it. The fathers were convinced that our nation had been singled out for a destiny much greater than our own prosperity that on some level we were acting for the good of the whole world. Well, there's a shadow side to that, isn't there, um, in terms of um, fighting for rights and liberty of humankind, but that was ultimately tainted and undermined by the sense of providence uh, uh, that we had to emancipate peoples of the world who were seen as ignorant and slavish and devilish and less than human. Right? So part of the founding of our country and this idea that we have the universal idea of democracy is going to be the best thing for everybody. In the midst of that, we've got chattel slavery and we've got displacement of Native Americans across and killing of Native Americans as we take over land. Right, So there's this really hard um, challenge in those values. Yes, we all... Uh, deserve the same good, and yet at the same time, only those of us who are in charge are going to dictate how that good happens. Um, and so we, as a as a, a Unitarian Universalist culture, are working to create structural change within our own organization to reduce the impact of white supremacy in our own organization, looking at hiring practices and all kinds of conversations about that in, in, as opposed to do we just have this sort of shallow idea of diversity or are we actually going to go for structural change? Are we actually going to try to undo some of the ways, some of the things that we have inherited? I mean, we didn't do that 200 years ago, but we inherited it. And what are we going to do about it to actually create systemic change so that all people do have access to good, not just some people? So I think yeah. that's part of the work that we're doing, and I know you talked about yeah, similar work in si unity. Similar work in that one of the things that I didn't mention is that in 18, from 1861 to 1865, something really important happened in our country. What was it? The Civil War. Do you know where the first battle was? At the Kansas-Missouri border. So that war started right there in that area where we were founded 20 years prior to, 25 years prior to. Can you remember things that happened 25 years prior to right now? 25 years is not a long time. So do you think that that might have affected how unity began and what was happening there? It did. It did. It affected us for years and years. When the seminary was begun, when education was begun there, one of the dark marks on the, the surface of unity is that we did not handle people of color with grace. We would not allow them to live on the site. We, we had great separation. And even today, we still have 
Unity Seminary and uh, the Urban School. And those schools came out of that rift, out of that difficulty. And those schools now are kind of pushing towards each other. The communities are pushing back and saying, how do we become more connected? How do we in unity become more connected? We have a lot of uh, fractures for different reasons. This part of unity and that part of unity and another part of unity. And we're, so we're working on bringing unity into a more uniform place. Another thing that happens in this, there's a lot of ministerial conversation about this, is we can be very insular. We like to come together and raise our frequency. We're going to pray. We're going to find the divine inside of us. We're going to bring ourselves to the place that we can be the hands and feet, that we can follow the way showers example and do something from our sense of divine center. But we don't go stand on the steps of City Hall because we so treasure diversity here that none of us really want to take a stand that's going to, going to offend somebody else, right? So, so as Julia and I have talked about this, how we approach things, we've talked about, you know, well, we could go and help the Unitarians because they go out and resist something. And we don't resist, we create. So we do this differently. So bring them all here and we'll, we'll meditate together and we'll bring ourselves to a place of agreement about what we're gonna do. And then we'll go out in this very positive way. To which Julia responded. <laughs> I said, yeah, you can bring the Unitarians down into, your, into the heart, out of the head, and we'll grab your hand and take you to City Hall. <laughs> So there's this whole place of asking <laughs> ourselves as a faith tradition and as people of faith, as uh, what Julia often refers to as beloved community, how we become better beloved community together, how we honor each other's work, how we work together, how we find our way through this very confusing time yeah. about where we will be in the changing face of life right now. And what we decided we would do is that we would invite you into mm -hmm. conversation. So Thursday night, we will have an event called World Cafe. And if you haven't signed up, you can sign up. There's plenty of room. We will have conversations in Fellowship Hall and in here. We're going to break into groups of four to six people, and we are going to talk together, our community and High Plains community. We're going to talk about where the crossroads are, where the separation is, and really address some very direct questions about how we would work together, about what we expect from each other. And one of the questions that came up, one of the comments that I got after the last service, and I didn't share this with you, but I will now, was, I really, really, really want to know how to take a stand better. Right because I feel like I don't have the courage to do it. Right. I don't have the courage to step out. I think we all have some really strong right. feelings here, but finding the courage to stand in them and to do it in a way that doesn't take your vibration down, that doesn't take you down into the ugliness, for us to be able to stay where we are, to go out in a holy way, to look for how we create civil discourse, how we get to the point where we can say we don't have to agree to like each other. We can disagree 
and still like each other a lot. You know, we can, we can disagree and still find places we can work together. How do we do that? If we can't do that even in our own building, how could we possibly ever believe that it could happen out there? Right? We have an opportunity for open conversation. And Julia and I will talk a little bit more and answer some questions for you if you have them on, um, on Thursday night. I hope that you'll join us. I hope that you will continue to work to make authenticity real and not just something that we talk about, to make acceptance and inclusion something more than surface tolerance, but to actually develop in yourself the skills that allow you to be with people who think differently, who might have things in common and things different, and figure out how we move through life as more than two communities sharing a building that we are able to be communities that support each other and that see at least honor in each other the good work that is done. So Julia, thank you. Will you please join me in thanking thank Julia for her time? <laughs>